doing this. <laughs> We're doing this. I know it's only Wednesday, but I feel like Monday was a lifetime ago. <laughs> I'm really tired, Anna. <laughs> I am too. We can do this, though. This uh, is a really fun. good topic. It's a really fun topic. How have you been? I've been good. I have been only listening to ABBA lately. Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> yes, I don't know why. You love ABBA. I do, but I don't normally listen to just ABBA. I was having a really busy day on Friday, so I threw them on in the background as my working music, and I was like, this is great. Why don't we all listen to this all the time? So that's where I'm at right now. So it became your next favorite So it is now to listen the, to. the only thing I've been listening to since Friday. What is your favorite ABBA song? Oh my god, it changes every day. I really like... Uh, Does Your Mother Know, which I think should be a classic in every household. <laughs> However, On and On and On may be my new favorite. I think that's a little obscure, though. It's a good one, though. Highly recommend. Oh, my gosh. Now I want to listen to some ABBA. So I remember when I was a kid, I really liked the A-teens. Mm-hmm. And I felt so cheated when I found out they were just a cover band of ABBA. <laughs> oh, man, their music just lives on. So then I put them into Wikipedia because I was curious. Yeah. That's where I was at the other day. <laughs> um, apparently they won the Eurovision Song Contest. And then it became on my bucket list to go to the Eurovision Song Contest one year. Do you know what that is? No, I don't know what that is. So I'm going to Google it to find the official definition for you. But it's like a okay. European, I don't want to say American Idol because I think it, it like it can be anything. It doesn't just have to be a person. Oh. The Eurovision Song Contest, often simply called Eurovision, is an annual international song competition with participants representing primarily European countries. So it's a song contest. I think you can be a band or a duo or an individual. And there's a winner. Um, so some of the winners include ABBA, Bucks, Fizz, and Lulu. Apparently Celine Dion won for the Switzerland. Whoa! Johnny Logan apparently won the contest twice for Ireland. So apparently you can participate more than once. I don't know what happens if you win, though. Yeah, do you get, like, a bunch of money? Apparently or... Ireland has the highest number of wins. They won seven times. Sweden is second with six times. Oh, so Denmark it... and Norway have both won three times. So it's like the Olympics of singing. I think it is. And I would really like to go. That sounds amazing. Because it looks like a very fun time. So is it yearly or does it happen every It's every year. Years? So this oh. it's every year. So this past year was May 12th to the 16th, I think. I, Google is telling me that. I don't yeah. just know that. Oh my um, gosh. I'm looking at all these beautiful photos on Google for Eurovision. Right? And it just seems like a lot of confetti and it just looks like a big old party. I wonder how many, because it's an international song contest, I wonder how many people they fit into the arena. I don't know, but I'd be willing to find out. Because it looks massive. It looks really fun. Yeah. So that's on my bucket list of things to do now. Heck yeah. That's a cool bucket list item. You right. don't really hear about that. <laughs> it's always like, I want to go to this country. I want to go to that country. I I've go. never heard someone say, I want to go to Eurovision. <laughs> it looks very fun. I recommend you watch YouTube videos of it. I want to do that. And I want to go watch rhythmic gymnastics at the Olympics. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You I and bet. your rhythmic gymnastics. <laughs> Those videos phase. are mesmerizing. <laughs> These people are incredible. <laughs> The other day, Anna and I were sitting at brunch, and I'm like, hey, Anna, what's up? How has your weekend been? She's like, I've been hooked on (laughs) rhythmic gymnastics videos for the last two days. Everybody go watch them. They're amazing. Watch the the individuals are incredible, but the groups are insane. Like, these people are so coordinated in time. Yeah. I don't understand. I have to agree with you. And I actually think it's kind of sad because they're really um, just participating in true acts of fitness and skill and athleticism and acrobatic but i feel like it gets downplayed because it's like women doing it with a hula hoop and a sparkly outfit right it's like what they are doing is incredible right the fact that there's a hula hoop and a sparkly outfit should not discount from the fact that it is a true like feat of fitness exactly the feminization of it is exactly what makes it come off as weak when at the end of the day it is incredibly skilled exactly I was watching this and then Sport. getting enraged. Yes. About yeah. the patriarchy. <laughs> right. Weren't you telling me there was one woman who who was like, who threw three hula hoops. With her, with her foot. With her foot. But she aimed them to three different people. It's not like she just 
threw three hula hoops with her foot and right. they all went to one location. Right. Like she got them to three different spots and At one the same throw. Time. I can't throw any. I don't even think I could throw three hula hoops, period, right now. Right. With Me my neither. hand. With my hand. With both yeah, my hands. This is amazing. I would struggle. I was, I was blown away. So. <laughs> That's amazing. I would recommend you check that out. <laughs> you ready to get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. With that, I'm Anna. I'm Henna. And this is... But, but it, it is Rocket Science. All right. Should we actually talk about space now? Yeah. Let's talk about space. We love space. We do love space. And on that note, so we both work in space. However, we both love aerospace in general. So a few days ago, it was International Girls in Aviation Day. And Delta did this really cool thing. Yeah. Delta flew 120 um, girls... From the ages of 12 to 18, from Salt Lake City to NASA. That's so awesome. Apparently, it was with something called WING, and this was the fifth annual WING flight. So, WING is an acronym for Women Inspiring Our Next Generation. And it was super cool that Delta did this because they also did this with an all-female crew. I saw that. It was apparently even like the uh, the tower operators were women, too. Yeah, the gate agents were women, that's so cool. And then it also mentioned an interesting statistic, which I didn't actually know. Only 5% of pilots are women. Right. Which I knew it was low because I think I fly, I've flown, I think, a lot for, I've flown a fair number of times. And yeah. I have only had, I think, one female pilot. Actually, I just flew um, a few weeks ago. And I remember when I heard the pilot speak over it, did the Did it take you intercom? by surprise? It yeah. It took me by surprise. And then I realized, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't think I've had a female pilot in a long time. Because you just become so adjusted to the pilot always being a man. Right. Yes. That actually took me by surprise too. When right. it first happened, I was like, oh my God, it's a woman. But and then I saw another statistic in the same article that Anna, you sent me. We're going to have the link to it in yeah. our sources. Um, that Delta hired 7.4% of their uh, new class of pilots in the last, I think it was, in the past four years, 7.4% of Delta's new hire pilots are women. That's awesome. So I'm like, okay, they're working on it. Yeah, that is that is really awesome that they're working on it. And it, from the article, it sounds like a, a, some of the girls who flew from Salt Lake City to NASA Johnson, it was the first time they had ever flown. And I really, I think flying is so cool, and I um, I think it's really easy to forget that flying is a privilege. Yes. It is not cheap. Absolutely. It's really a privilege. It's a privilege. But it's this amazing thing we can do, and I think it's incredible that Delta is, um, you know, providing that opportunity to so many young yeah. women. Personally, I was inspired to go into aerospace by flying on airplanes. I love airplanes. I think they're so cool. They're amazing. I still love flying on them. I think it's awesome. And it sounds like they got a whole tour of NASA Johnson and they had to do a bunch of really neat space activities. It's so wonderful. It was really cool. I just saw this article and it made me feel good. It makes me feel good too. I was really excited. All right. Should we get into our topic for today? I think I think we have no other choice. Yeah. So in the news lately, you may have seen a lot of talk about trying to get people to Mars. It seems like the really hot thing to talk about. Elon Musk is really into it. A lot of things that aren't mentioned is it talks a lot about the space vehicles required and the technology required to get us to Mars does not talk a lot about the effect of being in microgravity in space for that long on the human body. Right. And Hannah and I both think that's a really interesting topic and something that needs to be explored further. Yes. So we are going to talk to you about space medicine and how space impacts the human body today. So to just to start off, I'm going to go ahead and talk a bit about Skylab. So we're going to be mentioning Skylab throughout this episode. And we usually don't hear about Skylab. We always hear about the Apollo missions. Yeah. And... Um, the ISS. And the ISS. And it's very important to recognize Skylab. So Skylab operated from May 1973 to February 1974. It was the only space station operated exclusively by the United States. I actually don't think I knew that. Yeah. It's huh. it's really interesting. So that is interesting. Three, three man crews lived on board of the station for long durations, for 28, 56, and 84-day durations. It's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time in orbit. Um, and this was an, a record that stood until, an American record that stood until the shuttle era. And what's really important about the fact that these astronauts were on these uh, long-duration missions was that we were able to gather a lot of data 
based off of uh, biomedical and life sciences. So astronauts aboard the station conducted 270 experiments uh, specifically in biomedical and life sciences. And this included investigations on the astronauts' physiological responses to long-duration spaceflight, as well as solar astronomy, um, Earth observations, and then materials processing as other research topics. Skylab was actually uh, where th the most comprehensive biochemical study was actually carried out in space. It looked into hormonal changes in astronauts. So Skylab is a beautiful mission, and we plan on covering it in a future episode topic, but I just wanted to give a bit of an introduction because we're going to be mentioning it throughout this episode. All right, so let's jump in. To start off, I'm going to go ahead and dive into the psychology of astronauts in isolated, confined environments. So space is categorized as an isolated, confined environment. If you think about it, astronauts are in this small spacecraft for long periods of time with only their crew surrounding them. And this has effects on human psychology. So on Earth, when if I were to get into an argument, say with Anna. <laughs> we never would ever do that. We would never do that. Of course not. Uh, but if we were to get into an argument or dispute, we could walk away and cool off and then come back. But when you're in an isolated, confined environment, you can't have that. And I have thought about that. Right? I'm like, what would happen? Well, what would happen if you got into a fight with someone and you were in this tiny little capsule with them? I also feel like, I don't know, maybe this is just me. But if I am alone with just those people, mm -hmm. I am guaranteed to get annoyed with them. Oh, yeah. And therefore get in a fight with them. I feel like it's just human nature to become perturbed if you are spending that much time with just a few people. Right. And actually, I'll go into this in a little bit, but the screening process for NASA's astronauts um, and how they look for certain qualities in people to be incredibly patient because they're entering into this environment where it's very easy to get caught up with uh, interpersonal issues. So I found this quote from a cosmonaut, um, Valentin Lebedev, in Diary of a Cosmonaut. He says, we don't understand what's going on with us. We silently walk by each other, feeling offended. We have to find some way to make things better. Did they ever find a way to make things better? I actually don't know if they found a way to make things better. <laughs> I really hope so. But in this quote, they, Valentin is referring to um, the interpersonal issues that arise from being in a small, confined environment with a small crew. And actually, in 1976, the Soyuz 21 um, mission, the Russian long-duration mission, was actually terminated due to interpersonal issues. Has that ever happened since? Um, I've never heard of a mission being terminated for interpersonal issues, so I was just curious... I 100% believe it happens. I mean, obviously it did. I'm actually surprised it hasn't happened more. So that's a good question, Anna. Um, interpersonal issues can also lead to other mental hurdles. Um, and I know that, like, I was reading about different missions and um, anything related to human psychology that could have caused termination of them. And I found that in November of 1985, the crew of Salyut 7 returned to Earth after 56 days in space, which was 160 days earlier than they had planned. Whoa. Yeah. And that was re and it was reported that one crew member had not been eating or sleeping well and lacking motivation. And after the flights, reports suggested appendicitis, but interviews with the crew suggested psychological reasons. Um, and then recent reports actually indicate depression. So I'm sure there are other missions that we could look into some more and find um, any sort of mental hurdles that could have caused them to be terminated early. That's interesting. It is very interesting because we really don't hear about that no. when we talk about space, but it makes a lot of sense. It does. Um, I actually think NASA is doing like a habitat program, like a habitat isolation study called HERA, I yes. think is what it's called, yeah. right? Uh -huh. Where they are trying to understand the psychological impact of isolation on small crews right. i think they are doing it specifically with mars as the end goal i believe 
But the yeah. I, so I think like they're doing this to try to model a Mars mission. So it's like a it's an analog mission where exactly. it happens at NASA Space Center. Yes. NASA Johnson Space Center where they have a model like a mock-up. Yes. There's exactly there's like a mock-up space habitat that they live in and they're isolated. Yeah. I think a lot of them run for 45 days, I believe. It's actually a really interesting project and it's something I think we could do a whole episode on the hair project. Yeah. But they are actually trying to research the effects of isolation right or just on small groups of people over long periods of time right and what's really interesting is that like you mentioned in Hera um research has also been brought in for to apply to be applied to space research has been brought in from like Antarctic missions also that's probably a really good analog yeah because they are so it's the same thing resources are really hard to get to right they're in a whole extreme environments you can't really go outside very often Uh uh-huh you're with the same people for extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. Resources are scarce. Exactly. Man, it's the same thing. Yep. Except you have gravity and that's kind of a nice thing. So yeah, so going back to depression, um, as I touched on, the there's in space, like we just mentioned, there's chronic isolation and there's this inability to change one situation. And also on top of that, you have low light levels and this can also lead to depression. I think this is also what calls is like causes like cabin fever, right? Isn't that when people get depressed because they are just bored and stuck and have nothing to do? Yeah, I've heard of that term before. Yeah, I think that's a similar idea. I mean, I'm sure this is on a much higher extent. Right. I think that would be a good comparison. Right. These astronauts are either being um, are being overworked. They're separated from their families. If small conflict arises, if there's um, that can lead to depression, uh, dissatisfaction with the mission and just like low light levels, all of that combined, it makes for a very uncomfortable environment. Yeah. And then space actually messes with your sleep cycle, which is something I'll talk about a little bit later. Yes. So you imagine if you're also not sleeping well on top of all of this. Yeah. That I would be an emotional wreck. (laughs) Yeah. I would too. Like, I need my eight hours of sleep. I do too. I don't blame to any keep of it together. People. Yes, <laughs> I would not be pleasant to be around. That's for certain. Oh man. So along with depression, another thing that's been observed is anxiety disorders. Spaceflight is scary. Yes. Launch. I landing. love space. It looks scary. Yes. I I can only imagine that it is scary. There are plenty of s- stressful stages of a mission. Launch, landing, extravehicular activity. And before astronauts fly into space, they are, they are thoroughly screened for anxiety. They go through intensive training that would provide, that would provoke anxiety before missions. That's interesting. Yeah. That makes sense, though. It, it makes sense. So from this training, they're able to weed out people who are, who can't control their heart rate and their anxiety. Exactly. So anxiety attacks are actually rare on missions, and I have I didn't find any data on any anxiety attacks actually. <laughs> so I just saw that movie Ad Astra. Oh with yeah, Brad what Pitt. was that? Oh my gosh, I didn't like it that much. Oh um, man, <laughs> it's just I didn't like it that much. They also violated physics very poorly, like badly. It's not even like they yeah. made slight changes; like they really <laughs> oh, made man. some reaches. But that's not why I didn't like the movie. Um, the, the whole, they do, they do this whole thing about how Brad Pitt is famous because his heart rate never goes above 80 beats per minute, even when he's in all these stressful situations, which just made me think about how they train astronauts to not have panic attacks. So Brad Pitt and Ed Astra apparently was really good at not having panic attacks. Heck yeah, Brad Pitt killing it. Good job. (laughs) It's actually an interesting movie. They do a a whole bunch of stuff where they show his psychological evaluations the whole time. Uh Uh-huh. It tries to do a lot about showing the impact of isolation in space on the That's human body. Yeah, I, it I, does I sound like it. it does sound like it would be interesting. I know the physics sucked, but you know it's I hard just... to see space movies as engineers anymore. Because... It is. You should see it. Yeah. Um, I appreciated it for what it is. I didn't like it. Yeah. Is that allowed? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is allowed. <laughs> Thank you, Anna, for your Rotten Tomatoes aside. <laughs> You're welcome. I wasn't asked for, but I'm still providing it. Still appreciate it. All right, so switching over to another topic, bone changes. So when you look at, when you think about your bones, you think about, okay, there are these rigid rods that are inside of my body. Have you ever broken a bone? I have not. Have you broken a bone? I have. I broke my collarbone when I was a little kid. Oh, man. I know. I got to bring my x-ray to show and tell, and I still remember that. (laughs) (laughs) 
must have been the coolest kid around. I, I have never been the coolest kid around, but <laughs> thanks for thinking that was a possibility. Um, right. So bones appear rigid, but actually bones are dynamic living tissues that are reshaping themselves at the molecular level in response to stresses and strains that they experience. That's cool. Yeah. Um, each year, about 10 to 30 percent of the adult skeleton is remodeled by uh, osteoclasts and osteoblasts. Yeah. Isn't that why babies have more bones than adults do? Right. Because as you get older, some of your bones fuse together. Oh, fun. Yeah. I did not think about that. <laughs> yes, that is actually true. Babies have more bones than adults do. Oh, man. Yes. Google that. Well, you keep talking. I'll Google it. So osteoblasts are bone builders. And osteoclasts are bone consumers. So the balance of bone formation and resorption is controlled by a mix of hormones and biochemicals. And if bone resorption occurs at a greater rate than bone formation, then the bone loses density and it puts the individual at risk for osteoporosis. Wow. And Uh, bone, yeah. As an aside. Yeah. So when you're born, you have 300 bones. And by the time you're a grown up, you have 206. And the reason for this oh, is wow, because... Oh, wow, that's a big jump. It is huge. And it's because exactly what you said. As you grow older, your bones fuse together. So when you're a baby, you have more cartilage than you do bone. But by adulthood, you have actually more bone than you do cartilage. Anna, that was exactly what you said. But thank you for trying to give me the credit for <laughs> that fun fact. Well, it's because bones are dynamic tissues, living tissues that are reshaping themselves. Exactly. That is what you said. Oh, right, right, right. Yes. I was like, what are you talking about? You're the one who said that. <laughs> I didn't know that. I just knew a random fact that was probably in like bar trivia that I didn't get right. So oh, I remember. If I could go to trivia with Anna, we would win because Anna always has the best random knowledge in her brain that I she'll pull out whenever. I am nothing at and trivia. And it'll take you by surprise. <laughs> I seem good at trivia until you meet my younger brother. My younger brother is incredibly talented at trivia. We'll take him if too. that is a talent <laughs> to have. I think it is. Um, all right. So bone building occurs in response to loading on the bone. And when you're in zero G, when you're an astronaut, loading on the bone is reduced. Um, Bones no longer have to fight against Earth's gravity during locomotion. So that means that there's less mechanical strain that is being applied to the skeletal system. Huh. Yeah. So in space, Skylab data from the 1970s shows that the astronaut's urinary calcium output increased to 80 to 100 percent above normal that's a lot it is so much 80 to 100 percent above normal where it eventually plateaued and then along with calcium they found other urinary markers of bone degradation had increased x-rays of cosmonauts from the mir mission in the 1980s uh, missions that lasted six to seven months at a time found that the astronauts suffered one to 1.6 percent bone loss per month in spine and pelvis that's a lot so then what is the average bone loss of a human being over their lifetime just as a comparison metric that's a really good question it is about 16 percent in men okay so if these astronauts were in space for a year they would lose the amount of bone that a man would lose in a lifetime yes that is a really good way of putting perspective really scary yeah it's really scary so do you get that bone strength back when you come back to earth can you get that back or is that gone forever i remember reading that it actually uh you can get it back like okay, the level the um the rate of osteoblasts um will return to what was pre-flight okay well that makes me feel better yes in space bone strength is reduced and Fracture repair by bones is impaired. So if you break a bone in space, it's a, probably a big deal. It's a big deal. Right. Exactly. Oh, that's really interesting. I've never thought about that. Yeah. All right. So if your bones get... I know that your bones degrade. We've already talked... We just talked about that. So then I'm assuming your muscles also degrade. Yeah. So actually, without any regular use of, like bones, any use of the muscles, um, our muscles weaken and deteriorate, or the word is atrophy, in space. So studies have shown that astronauts experience up to a 20% loss of muscle mass on space flights lasting 5 to 11 days. All right. So I know this is probably not one-to-one. So I'm imagining if you are a human being who can bench press 100 pounds, after 11 days, you would only be able to bench press 180 pounds. I mean, if we were to... 
if you would say bone less, like if we were to say a percent bone loss is exactly equivalent to lifting a pound of weight, which it probably is not. But that's just crazy to me. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? It's crazy. 20% loss in 11, in less than two weeks? Yeah. You've lost a quarter of your muscle mass? Right. Because if you think about it, every day your pelvis, your leg bones, you're being held up against gravity by your bones and your muscles. And when you go into space in zero G, they're not doing the same amount of work as they are on Earth. That's nuts. It is pretty crazy. So maintaining muscle in space is a concern, especially for long duration space missions. Uh, You don't want a weak astronaut to have to carry out any um, strenuous physical activity. And that's a concern that um, NASA that NASA engineers have is that if astronauts have to carry out some sort of emergency task that requires strenuous uh, activity, then how are they going to do that if they are weak in space? So when asked about how important exercise is in space, actually, Don Hagen, I read this, uh, he's the director of exercise physiology at Johnson Space Center, said, there is no other activity except eating and sleeping that is given that much priority. Two and a half hours each day are devoted to fitness. I remember reading that somewhere and I was like two and a half hours yeah. and it's because so on so here you know under the earth's gravity you could run for half an hour mm-hmm. because you have all of that like you are using actively engaging all those muscles to run mm-hmm. because you are fighting against gravity right in space you're not doing that right I mean you have to work out for so much longer right and that's actually a hot topic right now um or it's yeah. Continually a hot topic is how to develop exercise regimes for astronauts so that they can uh so that they can help their muscles and their bones strengthen in the same way that you get that you're you stay strong every day on earth. Because it's also two and a half hours out of every day that you're on Right. It's the ISS, for example. Exactly. Is a chunk out of your day that could be spent doing research and experiments. A space specific activity. Right. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But yeah, you don't want a weak astronaut having to carry out strenuous physical activity. And that's how. So did you watch the movie The Martian? Yes, I actually read the book. I read the book too. It's It's a really really good book. book. (laughs) So do you remember Matt Damon um, is stuck on Mars for such a long time? What is his name in that book? Mark Watney? Is that correct? Oh my gosh. Matt Watney? Matt Watney? I think it's a Matt I don't think it is. I think it's Matt Damon, and that's what you're thinking oh about that. Oh my gosh, yes. But yeah, they never show us how he's maintaining his bone strength or his muscle mass, but I'm you assuming it's right. from all the farming that he's doing on Mars. All those potatoes <laughs> keeping him strong. It is Mark Watney. <laughs> nice, Anna. I loved that book. I liked the movie, too. It was such a good book. I think the author was Andy Weir. Yes. So he wrote a really interesting short story called The Egg, which I highly recommend. I think you can find it for free on the internet. I have not read The Egg. The Egg is, it's it's a really quick read. He also wrote Artemis, and I felt really bad because I loved The Martian. I did not like Artemis at all. I, did you read Artemis? I couldn't get through it, Anna. I read like half of it, and I couldn't get through it because of the female Oh, I didn't like her book. at all. I actually, oh man, I didn't like her at all. It was just like as a woman in STEM. And in space specifically, and as somebody who knows a lot of women in STEM and space specifically, yes, or just as a woman, I don't know any woman who is like who just talks about herself in the way that this woman is. Yes, I can't even describe it to you. Mm -hmm. It was just odd, and I felt bad because like I was really excited about the character being a female. I couldn't connect to her at all, which I feel like is hard to do as another woman in space. Yeah, industry. I'm not in space right now. Um, yeah, I didn't like it. I'm sorry, Andy Weir, but I really liked The Martian. I love The Martian. The egg was great, too. I wish, yeah, I just wish the female character was more so highlighted for her technical acumen as opposed to her physical attributes. That is a very nice way to say that. (laughs) Thank you, Anna. It took me a second of... You really thought about that. I was impressed. I was like, where is this going to go? I was impressed. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, so you got to exercise in space. And if we can come up with some great exercise regimes or uh, ways that we can load the astronaut in space to get more out of their workout in a shorter period of time, we can free up more time for experiments, like Anna said. That's it. Yeah, there's a lot of 
room for improvement there. All right. So before we jump into the next topic, Anna, do you think we should take a break? I think we need to. That sounds wonderful. I have to go to the bathroom. Sounds great. <laughs> so I went to the bathroom and I come out of the bathroom and Hannah is just laying on the ground intently looking at her phone. To what appeared to be just after she had Googled only the word Beyonce. Not like Beyonce songs. Not like how old is Beyonce. Just Beyonce in general. She's so beautiful. She is so beautiful. She's She's so powerful and amazing. (laughs) I'm not ashamed of my Google search, Anna. (laughs) She's like, what are you doing? And I'm going to say this to the world also through this podcast because I'm sure the world is listening to us. The world. It's probably just my mom, but that's fine. Thanks, Mrs. Jensen. Thanks, Mrs. Jensen. My dad's probably listening too. We got two fans. Heck yes. All right. Um, Yeah, so let's get back into it. So we wrapped up, I wrapped up with talking about musculature in space. So what happens when you get sick in space? Oh my God, how did you know that's what I researched? <laughs> I'm a psychic. So what my first thought of was when I, um, we talked to, was when the topic we had decided on was space medicine. was like, all right, what do you do if you get sick in space? As we mentioned earlier, you're isolated. There is normally a doctor on a lot of space missions, but the equipment they have is really limited. Right. The possibility of an emergency evacuation, like getting somebody back to Earth in case of medical emergency is very limited. So I was like, what do you do if you get sick? And then the next question that arrived was, do drugs behave differently in space? So effectively, how does space impact drug efficacy? And how long are drugs good for in space? That's a really good question, just knowing that the human body changes so much. Yes, exactly. It directly follows up what you talked about. The human body goes through all these changes. Therefore, if you take a drug, it probably behaves differently. So there's actually a paper, there's a couple papers I found, but the one I'm going to talk about the most is called Supplying a Pharmacy for NASA Exploration Spaceflight, Challenges and Current Understanding. This article was written by Dr. Rebecca S. Blue and Dr. Virginia E. Wotring. Interestingly enough, I have actually seen both of them speak. Very cool. Yeah, and then I, I had the privilege of having dinner with Dr. Wotring a couple months ago. She had blue hair, which I thought was really cool. Awesome. She was really nice. Um, and she's given a TED Talks on this topic that are also really interesting. We will link to them on our website. It's I think her TED Talk is just called Supplying a Pharmacy in Space. Oh, but that's it's, very cool. It is really interesting. So the main point is essentially that crew health is really important. And so because of that, it requires a comprehensive pharmacy. This is inherently a difficult task, especially so as mission lengths become longer, especially with all the talk about Mars. A Mars mission is 150 to 300 days. That's a long time. Yes. And that's just Earth from Mars. And the range is so large because it's dependent on location, position of Earth and Mars at launch and landing. That is why there is such a wide band of length of mission. Why this is such a difficult task to supply a pharmacy is the points I mentioned earlier. There's a lack of resupply capability. There's not really a lot known about pharmaceutical effectiveness or drug stability during a spaceflight, as well as the absence of emergency medical return capability. So medication use among astronauts during spaceflight is incredibly common. This is actually something I didn't know. Throughout the rest of the time that I'm talking about this, I'm going to mention microgravity. What effectively I mean by microgravity is being in space. Microgravity is the same thing as anti-gravity. Technically... As far as we know, as our knowledge, as human beings goes, you are never out of a gravitational field completely. So there is always microgravity. Right. So when we say zero G, we actually truly mean microgravity. Microgravity. So I want to refer to it as microgravity. That is what I mean. So exposure to microgravity isn't necessarily comfortable. So under Earth's gravity, there is a pressure differential throughout the length of your body. Which would make sense. The pressure in your feet is higher than the pressure in your head. Right. Just because your fluid would be pulled downwards. But when you're in space, this pressure is even. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing to pull the fluid down. Mm-hmm. So your fluids redistribute, redistribute and you have even pressure. When you see pictures of astronauts in space, they have this puffy face. You can actually see it. So they'll normally take a photo of them, their official photo before they go on their space mission. And then they normally take photos when they're in space. They have this puffy face, and it's often called moon face, mm. as, it's as a result of all that fluid distributing equally. Right. So I was actually looking to quantify the pressure distribution in the human body on Earth. So when I was trying to Google that, 
<laughs> I found some unrelated stuff. <laughs> I actually found a paper called A Computing Model of Pressure Distribution from Tight Underwear. <laughs> Uh, we'll link to it on our website. Um, yes, if that's your <laughs> if that's your jam or a concern you have, check it out. I didn't read it, but it sounds interesting. So because space is not comfortable, drug use is fairly common, and it is not extensively monitored. So astronauts are allowed to take certain medications without consulting a flight surgeon. I didn't know what a flight surgeon was. I had to look that up. So every astronaut is effectively assigned a flight surgeon that they talk to about any health or medical concerns they're experiencing in space. So they would consult with them to be like, I'm having this problem. How do you recommend I mitigate it? Oh, so like overcome. Yes, exactly. Oh, interesting. So it's a flight surgeon would yeah. be on Earth. However, okay. a lot of times the there's big gaps between them when they can talk to their flight surgeon. Right. And headaches are really common in space. Aches and pains are really common in space. Like I said, your bones are, like Hannah said, your bones are degrading. Your muscles are degrading. It actually messes with your circadian rhythm, mm. which is something I'll talk about a little bit later. Astronauts are allowed to take various medications without consulting a flight surgeon for things like congest- congestion and headache. Mm-hmm. Over-the-counter medication use is rarely recorded. And it's often discussed with flight surgeons, but not necessarily recorded. Mm-hmm. So documentation is difficult. Because constant communication is not available. And asking someone to recount symptoms days after they occurred is not feasible. Mm -hmm. So effectively, astronauts have really busy days. An astronaut will be in the middle of doing a whole bunch of stuff. They'll have a headache. They'll grab some Tylenol. Days later, when they get the chance to talk to their flight surgeon, the flight surgeon will be like, did you take any medication? They'll be like, a few days ago, I had a headache. I took some Tylenol. Be like, all right, did the Tylenol work? Did it alleviate your headache? Uh Uh-huh. They're like, honestly, it was three days ago. I think so. Like, (laughs) could you really recount the specifics of a headache you had three days ago? Right. Probably not. So because of this, there's little known regarding how much medication is used, the frequency of medication used, how much should be supplied, etc. So this makes supplying a first aid kit more difficult. Yeah, I didn't think about that because you are right. Like, if your day is jam-packed as an astronaut, you're not going to remember the Tylenol you took to relieve no. a minor headache. I barely remember the Tylenol I take to relieve a minor headache here just in a regular day. Right. I can't imagine if you are in space doing all these other things. Where you're scheduled every hour. Exactly. It right. would be really easy. Or even just things like congestion. Uh-huh. And also in the study, they um, in the paper, they do a study where they're able to talk about like trying to improve effectively medication counting in space. However, I believe they lost funding and it was not continued. Which is disappointing because counting, taking a very intense record of how much medication astronauts use in space is really important for understanding how these drugs work Mm. and whether or not they're effective. Does medication effectiveness change in space? I was actually curious about this too when I was looking into it. And the answer, the best answer I can find is probably. So in addition to fluid shifts, there is an immune system suppression and metabolism changes. So a lot of the things of your body change. And there is a name for the study of the effect of drugs on organisms, and that's called pharmacodynamics. So that's the study of how a drug affects an organism. Pharmacokinetics is the study of how an organism affects the drug. They're normally grouped together in abbreviated PK slash PD. So you'd normally just call it PKPD. Gotcha. So astronauts have reported medication not being as effective in space. There was a study published in 1999 about drug ineffectiveness during shuttle missions by Pucha L. et al., and it was called Pharmaceutical Use by U.S. Astronauts on Space Shuttle Missions. Thirteen drugs were listed as not effective or mildly effective. I immediately read that and was like, I don't know if I could name 13 drugs. <laughs> like, I was like, Tylenol, aspirin, um, ibuprofen. Mucinex. Oh, that's a good one. Tylenol PM. Does that count as a <laughs> second a one? separate one from Tylenol. <laughs> like, I didn't. I was like, I don't even know 13 drugs. So we're struggling, basically. So, <laughs> so that's a lot of drugs to not yes. be effective or mildly effective. That is. So included on this list was acetaminophen, which is Tylenol would be the name brand. And then aspirin was on the list, too. That's a bummer. Yes, that is a bummer. It was also a good point to note that research showed that sleep medication is not as effective. Mm. So this was in Barger L. et al. This was a prevalence of sleep deficiency and use of hypnotic drugs in astronauts before, during, and after spaceflight, an observational study. So this is especially important because your circadian rhythm is interrupted in space. So I've mentioned this before. Your circadian rhythm is effectively your body's cycle of sleeping and waking up. So the human body has a natural cycle of getting tired and going to sleep and waking up. This ends up getting messed up when you go to space for various reasons. So because of that, a lot of astronauts take a lot of sleep medication. 
So sleep, the effectiveness of sleep medication in space is really important. Because if you have an astronaut who's taking a sleeping pill, it's not working, so they're taking a second sleeping pill, it's not working, they're taking a third sleeping pill, and then in the middle of the night, there's a huge emergency. This astronaut is trying to deal with a huge emergency after having taken three sleeping pills. Ooh. That can be a really big problem. yep. Especially because sleeping pills can tend to have a really high half-life. Like, they will stay in your systems for a long time. Right. And astronauts are allowed to take sleep medication in space, but we really don't know how that impacts them. And that is particularly important, especially when it comes to these longer duration missions. Sleep is incredibly important to humans. You need it to function. If we need to medicate astronauts in order for them to sleep, we need to understand the effect that medication has on them. So essentially, the major takeaway is we don't know the answer. So many things in the human body are changing, and there is some research to back this up. The drug effectiveness probably changes. So finding out the answer is going to become more important, as I mentioned, as missions become longer and more people travel to space. Another interesting point is they don't really know how long drugs last in space. Tylenol on your counter, they can research how long Tylenol would be good for, because they can just put it on the counter. Right. (laughs) In a very broad sense. Right. However, in space, Hannah's actually going to talk about this. The conditions are so different than that on Earth. And one of the major things is radiation. Mm -hmm. Does radiation exposure, constant radiation exposure to medication change how long it's good for we don't actually know so that's important when it comes to a restocking standpoint to be like all right we sent up a thousand capsules of tylenol six months ago right is that good for years is that good for months right we don't know Mm -hmm. i'm using tylenol just because it's a common drug apparently there are at least 13 drugs that go (laughs) up there so so the recommendations of this the first paper the blue and wotring paper where strict monitoring of drug use by crews and improved documentation, research studies to provide actual flight data, and parallel studies using terrestrial analogs. So my next question while reading this was, all right, if medication e- efficacy is affected in space, is birth control effective in space? That's a very good question. <laughs> Thank you. Which then led me on the spiral of periods in space. I didn't. Yes. Let's talk about periods in space. Let's talk about it. I did not realize the historical prevalence periods in space have. So it was actually at one point used as a reason to not send women to space. So in the beginning days of space flight, this was used as an argument for why women shouldn't be astronauts would be that they got periods. Wow. And the main point of that was something called a retrograde menstruation. (laughs) From microgravity, yes. What is a retrograde menstruation? (laughs) It made me laugh, too. It's effectively the idea that if you aren't under Earth's gravity, would you get a period or would the blood flow upward through your fallopian tubes? Fascinating. Right? So that does not happen. You can get a period normally in space. (laughs) Just to show, so when this was initially thought of and discussed, everybody, almost everybody working in space and working on the missions were men. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was very little talked about or discussed or even really known in this group about periods, especially at that time when it was not discussed so openly. So when Sally Ride went to space 22 years after Alan Shepard, 22 years. 22 years. years. Yes, she went to space in the 80s. Wow. So when Sally Ride went to space 22 years after Alan Shepard, this is a quote from her. I remember the engineers trying to decide how many tampons should fly on a one-week flight. They asked, is 100 the right number? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and her response was, no, that would not be the right number. On a one-week flight. Yes, where she was not. I don't even think she was guaranteed to get her period that week. A hundred tampons is a lot of tampons. <laughs> like, And so from another oh article I was reading, they didn't give her like individual tampons like in plastic things. They gave her like a bunch of tampons tied together. Oh my gosh. Like, it was really... Like, there was not, it was just sad because it showed how detached they were (laughs) from women. And just. Oh, man. Yep. And so this led to, actually, Hannah brought this up, a really good point that in the future we should, we'll actually do another episode about gender and sex in space. Yeah. I'm, we're excited for this next episode. I think that'll actually be a really good one in the future. In the future, yes. So you can have a completely normal period in space. However, the other option is just not to have one. Mm -hmm. And that is what most female astronauts opt for. So medically suppressing periods is completely medically safe. So historically, female astronauts have just continuously taken birth control. This works in space just fine. So while this does work, it is inconvenient. That's a lot of pills. Three years would require 1,100 pills. So on top of that being a lot of pills, that's a lot of packaging weight. Right. 
So then I found a paper actually interesting enough um, in a journal called NPJ Microgravity. And this is by Varsha Jane and Virginia Wotring again. Oh, cool. Yeah. And this one was called Medically Induced Amenorrhea in Female Astronauts. So I didn't know what amenorrhea was. That's the absence of a period. Oh, okay. I know. So many big words today. Yes, we're learning a lot. <laughs> so this article actually goes through the different birth control options for women in space. That's awesome. Yeah. Basically different ways that women can choose to handle their period in space and what their recommendations are. Another interesting point I found was that the waste disposal system on board the U.S. side of the ISS, which reclaims wastewater, was not designed to handle menstrual discharge. Oh, wow. I didn't... I didn't that. know that either. So because they... I remember reading about it when that happened. Yeah. Like I think we were in high school when there was a big article that came out that, oh, the wastewater that the ISS collects can be reclaimed. So they do they do drink the water. Okay. That they pee out. Yes. So that's what this is saying. Right. It's just very politely saying. I remember hearing that too and being like, whoa, what? Right. But it's you recycle waste water. Right. Exactly. So they treat it and they reclaim it. Right. Um, but it can't handle menstrual blood. However, I didn't an- know that. Yes, I didn't either. Another interesting point is that no woman is ever forced to not get a period in space. Good. They are not forced to. It is completely a choice. However, most women opt to not getting a period in space. I imagine that would just be very... It's inconvenient to get that on Earth. Right. I can imagine having one in space would be more difficult. But that is a point I wanted to make sure was out there. So there are many birth control options on the market. This paper discusses a lot of them and their advantages and disadvantages for use in space. The paper was really recommended the use of long-acting reversible contraceptives, or LARCs. So these are a great option for suppressing menstruation in space. So an IUD, for example, a subdermal contraceptive, an implant, or an ejection, those would be considered a LARC. So then the next question was actually, will an IUD stay in place in microgravity? Good question. I had never thought about that until yeah. it was brought up. So <laughs> I didn't think about that either. Currently, there are no reports showing that G-forces of spaceflight would cause an IUD or implant to shift, because you can also get that implant in your arm. However, there has not been any IUDs in space, so they cannot say for sure. But it is believed to be perfectly safe. So more research needs to be done on the impacts of long-term birth control in space. Some birth control methods can cause bone density loss. The depot shot, for example can cause increased bone density loss in women. So if you're on Earth, that is not nearly as problematic as it is if you are in space where you are already experiencing extreme bone loss. Right. As Hannah talked about earlier. So because of that, the impacts of birth control in space need to be known, especially as mission durations get longer, especially as more women go into space. Mm -hmm. Another interesting point that I didn't know before studying this was that it's like, all right, We've had a lot of women who have gone to space. Why aren't there more studies done with the information gathered from these female astronauts? And it's because there are not enough female astronauts in order to guarantee that they will remain anonymous. So if you are going to publish a medical study, you need to have enough people such that if you publish their anonymous medical data, that it cannot be tied back to an individual. So if I was in a medical study, there would have to be enough other people and the data would have to be broad enough that mm. nobody could tag my test results to me. Mm. There are not a fee- enough female astronauts and there's not enough data to guarantee that, that if they publish their, I'm going to say test results, for lack of a better term, that they cannot be identified who they belong to. Wow. Yes. So they cannot do a lot with this data yeah. and publish it. Right. Because there is no way to guarantee the anonymity of the female astronauts, right. which is what they deserve. Absolutely. You can't they risk do that. deserve that. I read that and I was like, that's really unfortunate. Yeah, we need more data points. We do. We need more female astronauts. The summary of this whole thing and the moral of the story is we need to figure this out. Yeah. And I feel like that's a reoccurring theme with yes. all of the topics. We just need more data. We need more research. We need we more need data. To keep studying this. Yes. Especially as more women go to space. They've been announcing a lot of articles lately about how NASA is saying that they think some of the first Mars missions are going to be all women. We have that first all women spacewalk is coming up. Women are a vital part of space exploration. And in order to that, we need to make sure that their health can be maintained. Yes. And we need Along- the research to design whatever we need to support their health in space. Exactly. And that goes for male astronauts, too. Yes. All right. So I kind of mentioned it earlier. A major part of the space environment is radiation. And so Hannah's going to talk to us a little bit more about the radiation environments you would see in space. Yes. But before that, should we take a two-minute break? Let's take a little break. Yeah. We'll see you soon. 
All right, Hannah, talk to us about radiation. Yeah, radiation. So on Earth, we are in the safe cocoon of Earth. You know, we're protected by Earth's atmosphere, its magnetic field, Earth's mass. All of this protects our surface from space radiation. Thank you, Earth. Thank you, our beautiful cocoon Earth. But when you leave Earth's atmosphere, you are then bombarded with this insane radiation. That's why electronics are normally rad-hardened, Exactly. That's what rad-hardened... Rad stands for radiation, because radiation can affect electronics, and they won't perform as expected. So astronauts are exposed to ionizing radiation levels much higher than they would experience on Earth. Solar flares are um, high-energy protons don't affect humans on Earth's surface, but could lead to fatal doses of radiation to crew members performing any sort of EVA. All right, so solar flares cause higher levels of radiation? Yes. That would be why in all those movies they're like, there's a solar flare and it messed up all the communication. Exactly. And then everyone freaks out and panics for a moment. And then they all like descend into some chamber and then they're like, okay, the solar flare is gone. (laughs) Good to know. I don't think I've ever made that connection before. Oh, man. I hope we've improved your sci-fi viewing experience, everyone. <laughs> now you'll just be more technical and angry when people do stuff wrong on in the movies. <laughs> Join us. Um, so I'll cover some radiation terms. The first term, ionizing radiation. Ionizing radiation is the energy that impacts uh, an atom can cause the ejection of an electron which then creates an ion, the ionized atom or free electron then can form free radicals that are highly reactive and can damage surrounding molecules. And that's a real big problem when you think about DNA in the nucleus. Yes. Because it can damage DNA. That's a big deal. Yes. So the higher the energy in radiation, the more damage we have. So we measure energy, we measure the energy of radiation in electron volts. To put to give you some perspective, medical x-rays are measured in thousands of electron volts. And you know when you go to the doctor, they give you that really big, heavy apron to put on? Yes, I just got an x-ray. Yes. So that blood apron, Anna, protected you from about 90 to 95% of that radiation dose that was blasted at you to take that x-ray. Darn. Yeah. So 90 to 95% of that, we are protected from it with that lead apron. In space, some particles that travel through interplanetary space, aka galactic cosmic rays, can have energy levels of millions of electron volts. So that is millions of electron volts compared to the thousands of electron volts we are bombarded with during a standard x-ray at the doctor's office. Wow. Yeah. As radiation travels... The energy it imparts through ionizations is called linear energy transfer. Another fun term. That is a good term. It's a good term. We use it a lot. LET. Linear energy transfer. Compared to photons, the protons and heavy nuclei that are found in solar flares from solar storms, and they're also found in galactic cosmic radiation, are very massive. They are more massive and can lead to more ionizations per unit distance traveled. So those are incredibly concerning in space. Not something we worry about on Earth's surface, but when you get into space, you have to worry about that. Galactic cosmic radiation is that background radiation in the solar system. It's a continuous flux of high energy. Galactic cosmic radiation is very complex to protect against. For example, if an astronaut is in a spacecraft, And you have this high-energy iron nucleus that bombards the aluminum shield. It might stop in the metal, but if it directly collides with the nucleus of an aluminum atom in that aluminum shield, it can fragment and create lighter nuclei than that will continue to travel past the spacecraft's protective barrier for the astronauts. That's crazy. It's crazy. So radiation is incredibly complex. And what matters to us when we discuss this topic of space medicine is how much radiation is absorbed by the tissues. The absorbed dose is measured in a unit called grays. The abbreviation is GY. And a fatal single dose is about four to seven grays. The unit of measure for exposure is the sievert. So a large radiation dose from solar flare can cause these deterministic effects, which are caused by the immediate depletion of cells or cell functions in organs or tissues. 
To put this into perspective, I have some numbers. 0.5 to 1 sievert can lead to fatigue. Okay, someone's a little tired. That's fine. 3.5 to 5.5 sieverts, so jumping from 1 to 3.5 to 5.5, can cause nausea, diarrhea on the first day, and then death in 50 to 90% of cases within six weeks. 50 to 90%? Yes. That is too much room in there. There's a lot of room in there. And that's also a very that's large percentage crazy. of cases. That's, that's insane. And then if you get anything beyond that, 5.5 to 7.5 sieverts, you get nausea and vomiting within four hours and death for 100% of cases. That's insane. And so to put this into perspective, um, how what, what are some standard radiation doses that we have observed? One year in Denver, at a, Denver is a city at high altitude, um, a human is exposed to 0.002 sieverts. One year in Houston, 0.001. Eight-day shuttle flight is 0.0053, so we're increasing a little bit. Dose on Mir during the October 1989 solar event, that came out to be 0.15 sieverts. Wow. So it's high, but it still isn't the level that which can lead to fatigue, which is yeah. 0.5. Trip to the moon is estimated at 0.01 sieverts, so still pretty low. Trip to Mars jumps to 0.5. So that's when fatigue would start to happen. That's when fatigue starts to happen, right. So I was curious about this, and I googled it. I just watched that TV show Chernobyl, which is about the incident with the Chernobyl nuclear reactor. After the incident, the factory workers were estimated to have experienced between 8 and 16 sieverts, which is insane because wow. 7.5 yeah. sieverts will guarantee to kill you. Yes. So more than double that is what they were insane. estimated to have received. Oh, my God. This show actually does a great job in going into the impacts of radiation and just um, how nuclear reactors work in general. It's a really interesting show if radiation is a topic that you find interesting. Clear power is an incredibly interesting area. I think it can do a lot of good. I also think it's really dangerous. So that brings us into what are the long-term radiation effects? Great question, Anna. So the long-term radiation effects include cataracts, when your vision gets cloudy. Also, for men, reduced sperm count, 0.15 sieverts can lead to that, and temporary sterility in men. And it can also affect fertility in women temporarily. Um, 1.25 sieverts can lead to that. And another long-term radiation effect that we all naturally come to think about is cancer. Yeah, that's exactly where my mind went. Right. To determine the acceptable radiation exposures for astronauts, the National Council of Radiation Protection reviewed data from survivors of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombs in order to figure out what would be acceptable radiation exposures. They decided on radiation exposure limit that will increase the risk of cancer by no more than 3% of the baseline risk. Okay, so I feel like inherently being like you're increasing people's likelihood of getting cancer by 3%. So I think essentially what they're trying to say is that if your baseline risk of getting cancer is 2%, right. you're increasing it 3% on top of that 2%. Exactly, So yes. it would be 0. 0.03 times 0. 0.02. Yes. Not 5%. That's how I'm interpreting it that as it was written. also how I am to interpreting it. Because yes. if you just be like, you're increasing somebody's likelihood of getting cancer by 3%, that's horrible. That is a lot. I think yes. it's 3% of the, right, right, right. the baseline likelihood that they would get it. Yes. However, the data that exists from the atomic bomb survivors concerns acute exposures. Oh, so it was a short period of a intense exposure. Exactly. Rather than a long period of a minimal exposure. Exactly, Anna. So there isn't very much data on individuals that have been exposed chronically to low-level radiation as our astronauts would yeah. be exposed in space. So again, we've mentioned this a bunch of times. This will become more important as space missions become longer. Right. A really good, actually, study on the effect, if you are interested in the effects of being in space for a long period of time, Scott Kelly, I think he wrote his book Endeavor. So he had an identical twin named Matt Kelly. It was really interesting because he spent a year in space and they are able to do correct comparisons about what changed in his body and his DNA because of his identical twin who remained on Earth. It's a really interesting book. There's a lot of studies. There's a lot of, I think there was a documentary on him. I actually saw him speak. He was a really nice guy. He signed my book for me. Heck yeah. Yeah, I gave it to my, I had him sign it for That's my awesome. dad. So if you are looking more into the effects of space and microgravity on the human body, I would highly recommend Scott Kelly's book, Endeavor. Awesome. Yeah. 
That was really interesting. That was. And I didn't... do you have anything else to add? No, I think we should hop into our sources. Yeah. You want to go first? Sure. So I got mine from, I got <laughs> this one article was what happens when you get your period in space. I found that on NPR. I talked about some journal articles. I mentioned them above. We'll link them on our website. One of them came from Nature. Or one of them came from NJP Microgravity. Um, and then the rest I will link on our website. And then there's a really interesting article called Space, the Final Frontier of Birth Control. Hannah, what'd you get? So a lot of my information came from this textbook called Space Physiology by J.C. Bucky. And then I also got information from, so I took a class from Deva Newman, and I had some of her lecture notes, so I pulled some information from that. This Bone Loss in Space article from ESA, the European Space Agency, I'll have a link for that on our website. And then I also found this website for, it was a continuing education website for lab techs, and I thought that was really cool, and it talked about bones. Any other links, they'll all be included in the website, but those were the major ones. I think have. All right, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a review. Yes. Whenever your favorite podcast is any platform, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict. That's the one I use. I don't think anybody else uses that. <laughs> I, mean, I really like it. Yeah, check out our Instagram. It is but it is rocket science. And then feel free to send us an email at but it is rocket science.pc at gmail.com. Yeah, let us know what you want to yeah. hear. Go to our website at but it is rocket science. Please do you have anything do. you want to correct us on or anything you think we should know? Yep. Let us know. Let us know. Until Until next time, Space Cadets, three minus three, two, one, liftoff!